Well, this Advent season, we are looking at the minor characters of Christmas. Last year, we traced through the major characters. This year, the minor characters, those that don't appear in nativity scenes and in pageants. Um, And it really is a great reminder that we are minor characters, and that's a good thing. The major characters of Scripture didn't seek to be major characters. The Lord has always been pleased to pick the lowly and humble And that's simply what happens in redemptive history. And so we are minor characters. We aren't looking to make a name for ourselves, but to exalt the name that is above all names, Jesus, who is the Christ. And so in his name, before we read the word, let's come to our Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do come now in Jesus' name and knowing that he intercedes continually for us. And so we know that you are pleased to send your Holy Spirit as we ask uh, that in the reading and preaching of your word, your Holy Spirit would bear witness, that we would hear your word for what it is, your word, and that you yourself would penetrate even the hardest of hearts, hearts that grow callous and skeptical and bitter, to break through and to soften us that you would make us yours, that we might point away from ourselves and point to you, that your glory and grace may be known in our lives and known through our lives. And so it is we also pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning comes in two parts as we look at Elizabeth and then John the Baptist. Listen first from Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the berry leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. In this passage, we see the visitation of two cousins and their kids. Cousins Elizabeth and Mary and the babies that they bear, Jesus and John the Baptist. Let's remember how we got here, those first 38 verses. In this gospel account by Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, we see that Luke has done quality research into the events that he reports. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, we also have seen, are both descendants of Aaron, the original high priest. And so any son of theirs would be pure-blood priest. And even though Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful they are unable to have children, which in their culture was seen as an indication of God's punishment and disfavor. And so we see from this that for ourselves, sometimes we need to remember that bad things happen in our lives, not because of God's punishment, but sometimes bad things happen simply because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes we experience difficulties because of the sins of others, But sometimes we experience difficulties because it's a fallen world. And in the case with Zechariah and Elizabeth, God is going to use a bad thing to glorify himself as the great redeemer. Zechariah and Elizabeth 
could not have children. But that allowed God to glorify himself through the extraordinary birth of John the Baptist in their old age. From there, in verses 8 to 10, we saw that Zechariah, on one occasion, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, is able to go into the temple itself to pray for Israel's needs. And while they're interceding, he doesn't pray for himself, but prays for Israel. And a great reminder for us that while we are certainly invited to come to the throne of grace, to pray for our own personal wants and needs, we should always pray for the world and to pray for the church knowing that the world doesn't revolve around our personal wants, but the world revolves around God's will. And so then in verses 11 25, we saw that John's ministry would be not for the purpose of military or political victory, but for the important purpose of bringing God's people back to God, of bringing Israel back to God. And then verse 26 gives the account of Gabriel coming to Mary in the sixth month, it says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. And so he asked the question, in the sixth month of what? Sixth month of the calendar year? No, it's in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy that had been revealed in verses 23 to 25. In uh, verse 36, Gabriel tells Mary, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month for nothing is impossible with God. And that brings us to our passage, beginning at verses 39 and 40, where we read, At that time, Mary got ready, hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. The words, at that time, suggest that Mary went immediately, or certainly as soon as possible, after Gabriel's visit, in order to go and see Elizabeth. Why? Why did she go? Well, some suggest that it was because Mary wanted to check and see if what the angel said was true. That is, of course, ridiculous. Mary's faith in God was sure. She trusted that what the angel said was true because she trusted it as God's word. Now, others have also suggested that Mary just wanted to go and congratulate Elizabeth. That's a little bit cheesy, and really degrades the profound miracle of what is happening and revealed through these incredibly faithful women. Mary went to Elizabeth to celebrate the miracle and to be a witness to the divine events. Mary knew that what the angel said was true because she trusted it as God's truth, and she rejoiced in the opportunity to watch it actually unfold. So often I hear people say that they wish they could see God at work more often. Do you want to see God at work? Study God's word and apply it to life. Put his truth into action and you will see God at work in your midst. You want to see God at work? Believe God's word to be God's word. Live it out in your life and you'll see God at work in you and around you. Now, we're told that Mary is in the town of Nazareth and that she goes to Elizabeth and Zechariah's home, which is in a town in the hill country of Judea. That hill country is just outside of Jerusalem, certainly customary for the priests that would have to work in Jerusalem to live just outside of the town limits into those surrounding areas. Nazareth and this area of Judea are about 90 miles from each other, which, of course, we can cover in about an hour and a half by freeway, right? However, 2,000 years ago, before the days of highways and PennDOT, there was about a five-day trip involved in 90 miles, walking and perhaps riding by donkey. 
In Israel today, there is uh, a church that's called the Visitation Church in the town of Ein Kerem that commemorates the visit of Mary and Elizabeth carrying Jesus and John the Baptist. Also in that town of Ein Kerem is the church of St. John the Baptist, which is said to be built over the site of the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And actually on July 1st of the year 2015, so just a couple years ago, an archaeological excavation unearthed a 2,000-year-old ritual bath in the center of that town, certainly giving credence to that being a legitimate town as revealed in Scripture. Mary and Elizabeth are here called relatives, back in verse 36. The King James translates it as cousins, which is why it is we typically call Mary and Elizabeth cousins. The term is actually more generic than that. It could be that Elizabeth is uh, an aunt to Mary. Uh, it could be a relative of all kinds. doesn't really matter. Uh, in fact, it's the same word that we see in verse 61 later that is certainly a more generic term for relative. Lots more is known about Mary. Very little known about Elizabeth because Elizabeth is a minor character. She doesn't get nearly as much press. Little is known about her, but her faith in God is extraordinary. In fact, the Hebrew name Elizabeth means my God is bountiful. Think about that with Elizabeth. My God is bountiful. It's either cruel or ironic for a woman who was barren, but it truly speaks volumes about this woman and her unwavering faith. Her faith in God is unwavering in the midst of the hardship of being childless. And as Mary approaches, Elizabeth, who's still not focused on herself, but focused on the Lord and the work that the Lord is doing. And so in verse 41, we're told that at the sound of Mary's greeting, the baby left in Elizabeth's womb and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And to say that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit is important. Note that the Holy Spirit is already present. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit being present after Pentecost. But here the Holy Spirit is at work before the birth of Jesus. And we remember that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three persons are eternal. All three persons of the Godhead have always been present throughout eternity. We also remember that in verse 15, John it was said, would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And in fact, that could be translated even from the womb. And we see that he was, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Yes, in the womb, John was a human being. In the womb, the Spirit was already at work. Note then also that Elizabeth was already a child of God. So saying that she was filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't refer to her salvation, doesn't even refer to her sanctification. It, it speaks to her being filled by the Holy Spirit so as to receive prophetic inspiration. So follow the events. Mary simply shows up. Hey, cuz, how's it going? Right? Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, realizes that Mary is pregnant and carrying the Lord. Mary herself may not have yet realized that she was pregnant. The angel had just visited Mary, and she immediately travels a couple of days to Elizabeth. Hey, cuz, how you doing? And Elizabeth announces that Mary is pregnant and carrying the Lord of the universe. Elizabeth then goes on to make the connection between the baby, John, leaping in her womb to the presence of the Lord in Mary's womb. 
I suppose the skeptic would say that the baby leapt in her womb simply because Elizabeth was excited to see Mary, or that it was just coincidence that the baby moved suddenly at the time, because babies do that all the time, right? Well, I remember uh, my wife, Jen, would sit sort of quietly when she was pregnant, and she would uh, sit at the dinner table, or we'd be doing something quietly, and all of a sudden she'd sort of jump, and I'd say, what happened? She said, man, the baby just sort of lashed out. We had two of our uh, girls, that they were sort of slow pushers. They just kind of gently moved. But Noelle, <laughs> and I asked her if it's okay to share this, Noelle moved very suddenly while she was in the womb and then did so after she came out of the womb as well. Uh, in fact, the first couple of months, she would just sort of be sweetly kind of laying there and all of a sudden, bam, you know, start doing like ninja moves or something, just kind of like randomly. She would just sort of thrust out. So, so there is that sense in which that can happen naturally. But we see that what happens naturally is also perhaps being used by God supernaturally. We could think it's a coincidence the baby jumped in Elizabeth at the greeting of Mary. But God's word is clear here that Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, was prophetically interpreting what occurred. Skeptics are skeptics because they trust in themselves above God's word. Believers are believers because we trust God's word above ourselves. And we know that God is sovereign over everything that happens, the good and the evil, are still under God's sovereign power. God is sovereign over everything that happens, and our activities in the world are all opportunities to minister God's word. So that takes us to the second half of our reading. So look again in your Bible. Uh, Following Mary's song, Mary's Magnificat, we come to the birth of John the Baptist, and the account begins at verse 57. Listen again to God's word. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. The births of... Jesus and of John the Baptist were filled with great expectation. 2,000 years ago, the social, political, and religious climate of Judea was at a critical juncture. Talked about this a bit last week, but Herod the king was the first foreigner ever to serve as king over the Jews. And in retaliation for previous actions, Herod killed off ranking members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, and slowly but surely, he was seeking to eliminate the Davidic line. The people of God anticipated a Messiah from the family of David who would come, but time was running out. Old Testament prophecies had pointed to this time period as the moment in history when a Messiah would come. The Old Testament, uh, as, we, as it, the Old Testament ended, as we read earlier in the service from Malachi 4, said, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And Luke 1, back in verse 17, confirms that John the Baptist will minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
the Gospels go on to affirm this reality. In fact, in Matthew 11, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. So Jesus makes it clear, John the Baptist is that Elijah who was to come. And he also says that John the Baptist is greater than all who had previously been born. Why is that the case? Because John the Baptist was announcing the coming of Christ. But then Jesus goes on to say that all who are in the kingdom, even the least in the kingdom, is greater than John the Baptist. Because in the kingdom, we see the fullness of Christ revealed. The least of us sitting right here, right now, who enters the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist because we will know the fullness of the revealing of Jesus Christ. So the births of Jesus and John the Baptist came at a critical time in history and filled with anticipation. After no prophetic announcements following Malachi 4 for 400 years, the angel Gabriel has made two visits to announce the coming of Christ. Now Gabriel's visit to Mary is better known to us at this time. But that was not always the case. It had been at the time of verse 57 that the word about the angel's visit to Zechariah and Elizabeth were known. The angel's visit to this older couple, this couple well past the age of childbearing, a priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, an old man and an old woman who were expecting a son. And they received exactly what they were expecting. So Mary comes to witness this. She stays for the final trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy, which was, incidentally, Mary's first trimester. And Mary stayed to witness the birth and to witness the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises, which they had believed by faith. And Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives rejoice with them. Rejoice that Elizabeth had given birth in her old age. They had no doubt that this was a miraculous act of God. They had no doubt that God was showing mercy in giving Zachariah and Elizabeth this son. But they did not yet realize the extent of the mercy of God, shown not just to Zachariah and Elizabeth, but the mercy of God to be shown to the world. Now, it was part of the law to circumcise a son on the eighth day, the public act that identifies a child to be a part of the people of God. The sign of circumcision in the Old Testament was that uh, sign, a public physical marker that indicated this child was a child of Israel, a child of the people, the chosen people of God. And so the sign of circumcision for Christians has been replaced with the sign of baptism. So it is that we have a public ceremony to baptize a child to identify that that child is a part of the people of God. So we got John the Baptist we got Elizabeth the Presbyterian, who brings John the Baptist for circumcision. We see in this that bringing together of baptism and circumcision as a common marker, a common physical display of marking us as a part of the covenant people. The New Testament, New Testament as we read it, certainly gives examples of people coming to faith and being baptized. But that was in that first generation, what, that's mostly what's being reported because the emphasis there is that Gentiles who came to faith did not need to become first Jewish by becoming circumcised, but could certainly be baptized. And yet that Old Testament, New Testament connection shows that baptism and circumcision are connected in the same thing that they reveal, that it is our covenant children. And so even 
unbelievers of Israel were still Jewish. They were circumcised, they were still part of Israel, but certainly parents desired and God desired for their hearts to be circumcised. So it is that in the New Testament, there can be children who are baptized, who don't come to Christ, but they are a part of the church. And we know that they need to be baptized by, in their hearts. Romans 2 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. So it is that Jesus also told the people, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we recall that John's baptism really was a baptism of repentance. It was not even the fullness of what it was that baptism is to mark as it does for us today. When we were back in, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, uh, is where Paul comes uh, to the people of Ephesus and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? And they reply, John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. And so at that point in time, Paul baptizes these believers in the church of Ephesus in the name of Jesus, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who they now knew even existed. And in all this, we see that the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, is oftentimes descriptive, not prescriptive. That is to say, it's describing what took place, but doesn't give us the fullness of what's happening. For the fullness of understanding the covenant sign, we look at the fullness of what is revealed in all of Scripture. And in that, we remember that the people, the events, the ceremonies of the Old Testament prefigure they typify, they foreshadow what was fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so baptism is the New Testament sign of the covenant of grace, prefigured by the Old Testament sign of circumcision. It's like the joke, Jesus and Melchizedek walk into a bar, and the bartender says to Jesus, we don't serve your type here, so Melchizedek walks out. All right, did you catch that? All right. The Old Testament, character, Old, Testament, Old Testament character Melchizedek typifies Jesus, the king, priest. We don't serve your type here, so he walks out. The Old Testament typifies, and so we see in circumcision the typifying, the foreshadowing in part what's to be revealed and the fullness of that that comes out within baptism. So it turns out that John the Baptist really was Presbyterian. Now, it's customary not only in the Jewish culture to do the circumcision, but there was also the time in which you named the baby as part of that circumcision ceremony. Customary to give the firstborn son the name of his father. Today, the name we give a baby is for one of two reasons. Sometimes we seek to honor somebody by naming our child after them, but sometimes we just like the name. The names of our three girls have absolutely no connection to anyone that we know. We just like the names. In fact, we were careful not to name any of our children after somebody, lest everyone else was offended because we didn't name it after them. Jen and I had thought about that, that we said, you know, if we had named it after my mom, then her mom might be offended. We named it after one of my sisters, then all of our other sisters might be offended. So we either had to choose to name our firstborn Beverly, Carolyn, Bethany, Susan, Janet, Ledford, or Abigail. <laughs> we chose the latter. In Jewish culture, it was expected that you would name the firstborn son 
after the father, a way of carrying on the family tradition. So it is that the neighbors and relatives all assumed that this long-desired baby would be named Zechariah. But Elizabeth speaks up and says, no, he is to be called John. The other thing to know about names is that they all mean something. And people knew the meaning of that name. The name John means Yahweh is gracious. The Lord is gracious. In naming their son with this new name, John, Zechariah and Elizabeth were not disregarding the family history. They were recognizing that this is a new moment in history. This is a new day, and the Lord is gracious and is being revealed and announced by this, their son. And remember that Zechariah had been struck mute for doubting the word of God. He couldn't speak, which came to the angel Gabriel. And the relatives and neighbors make signs to Zechariah, trying to figure out what to name this child. They're making signs as though Zechariah, because he's mute, is also deaf, which may have been the case, but probably not. Because I think about that, I remember growing up in my high school Every year we had about a half dozen or so foreign exchange students, and they always wondered why people shouted at them, do you like it here in America? Why are you shouting at me? I'm not deaf. John, who is able to write, which certainly tells us that he and Elizabeth were communicating just fine during her pregnancy, he could tell her about what had happened in the temple, so he asks for a writing tablet. And all of our youngest who are here are picturing an iPad. Not so much. A little wooden tablet, maybe with wax on it that you would etch into. And he wrote, his name is John. To say that the people were surprised would be a huge understatement. To say that they were surprised by what happened next was an even bigger understatement. By writing, his name was John, Zechariah declared exactly what he had once doubted. He witnessed the fulfillment of God's worth of God's word, the birth of a son to be named John. And suddenly after nine months, Zechariah is able to speak and to praise God. Verse 65, 65 then, after this amazing thing, is the good kind of gossip. That throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. The birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah suddenly able to speak and talk about what had happened. The word got out that John was born. Zechariah could speak and people began texting each other, talking about it, new memes on social media. Sort of. The people were filled with awe, reverent fear. Everyone was talking about what God had done. Now, the NIV translates, verse 66, everyone who heard about this wondered about it. Most others translate it more literally and better. All who heard it laid them up in their hearts. When you hear about the birth of a child, the child and their parents are on your hearts as you pray for them. Perhaps as you bring meals to the parents in this new family together. You celebrate with them. But we get to read here what it was that was in the hearts of their parents as they celebrated with this family. They were asking, what is this child going to be? Well, he is going to be the prophet who announces the coming of the Lord. And what irony by God in causing the prophet's father to be mute. It's like causing a singer's father to be tone deaf or a long jumper's father to be crippled, or a painter's father to be colorblind. And so notice in that, that the way God works is to reveal himself in our weakness 
and not just in our strengths. Do not look for God to reveal himself through your strengths, but in your weakness. It is the reason that we do not come to church only when we're doing well, but especially when we're not. We come to God with our weaknesses, that his strength may be revealed. We come to God with our sin, that his grace may be revealed. God revealed his divine power, bringing about the birth of the greatest of prophets through an old mute man and his wife. Like Zechariah, Elizabeth and John the Baptist are minor characters who point away from themselves and point to Jesus, who is the truth that sets us free. Amen.